0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, a typo stops a billion-dollar bank hack, the vulnerability in 7-zip you should probably know about, and some of our favorite secure remote network access solutions. Plus, your great questions, our answers, a packed roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We streamed episode 267 on May 19th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and iX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello. 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 Now, I have... Uh, Gotten a little sneak peek here, Alan, but it's fair to say once again, a
1: big show. I don't know how you yes. do it. It's almost like two hundred and sixty seven uh, in a row. I didn't even get a chance to go out and find some more stories, just the backlog of stuff. yeah, it was so much. And uh, a couple of these were just so good. It was like, hmm. I, I'm also super looking forward to the
0: feedback because we had some really good follow-up emails from the audience, tons of good follow-up. We have yeah. so some good things there. And then in the roundup segment, uh, some pretty important follow-up stories to last week, and a couple other things. So big show, Alan. So let's start with how a typo
1: helped stop a billion-dollar bank hack. That's quite the headline. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, so hackers compromised credentials of Bangladesh Bank, which is basically Bangladesh's central bank, uh, and used those credentials to make swift wire transfers and send the money all over the place to themselves, <laughs> with money laundering and so on, right? So the... Uh, cyber criminals, broke into Bangladesh Bank's systems and in early February tried to make fraudulent transfers totaling $951 million, so just shy of a billion Hmm. dollars, from Bangladesh's bank's accounts at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York in the U.S. Uh, So they basically hacked the computer system the bank uses to do wire transfers and started transferring all the bank's money it keeps at the U.S. Federal Reserve to do foreign currency transactions with other banks and so on. That's amazing. Uh, and started wiring the money all over the place. Uh, using the credentials, they started a wave of transfers. Uh, the first four went through. Uh, <laughs> and that totaled $81 million, and they all went to uh, the Philippines. Um, and just that, stealing $81 million, makes it the biggest bank heist in history already. Wow. wow. Um, you know, uh, if you remember the story we covered months ago, you know, there was one group the, of, that Kaspersky said may have managed to steal as much as a billion dollars, but that was in smaller amounts mm-hmm. from a whole bunch of different banks. Mm-hmm. This was $81 million from one bank in one day. <laughs> uh, however, the fifth transfer they tried to do was stopped because of a typo. Oh, okay. Uh, so they were trying to transfer $20 million to a Sri Lankan nonprofit organization, uh, but it was held up. When the hackers misspelled the name of the NGO, uh, the hackers misspelled "foundation" as "fandation," <laughs> uh, which prompted the routing bank Deutsche Bank in Germany uh, to seek clarification from the Bangladesh Central Bank. So which they were immediately was like, "We didn't do that wire transfer," and looked into it and started canceling wire transfers. Hmm.
0: So these hackers are breaking into banks and then transferring the money to GMOs.
1: Uh. N- well, uh, an NGO in this one case. Oh yeah, uh, sorry, I'm an NGO. NGO, yeah, I, I, NGO. The first four non-government big- ob- organization.
0: Uh, organization. Yeah,
1: thank you. Yeah. Now the first four transfers. No, it looks like those were you know money laundering, cash okay. out type thing. Okay. But you know, once you've got eighty-one million dollars, do you really need? Yeah. Why not, not do some transfers? Robin Hood good, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, they don't talk about where the first four went or where the rest went. Uh, so it turns out they had actually scheduled a lot more wire transfers mm. too, right? Uh, in total, the transactions that were stopped uh, totaled $870 million. Hmm. Wow. So if they hadn't made the typo, they probably would have kept going and maybe would have managed to actually steal a billion dollars. <laughs> uh, but only because another bank was like, you're trying to wire money to somebody that doesn't exist. There seems to be a typo. Let's send that back. And this then, sets off, or that sets off the red flag, the typo, the misspell. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, actually, I think uh, as part of one of the other ones that's in this story, uh, I think the bank in Panama or somewhere was like, that's an unusually large amount of money. Uh, do, do you want to double check that and make sure that's not a typo or something? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then immediately it was like, oh, actually that's fraudulent. Let's, uh, break that back. Good. So were they able to get it back? So, uh, they, they stopped the, the 20 million to the Sri Lankans and the other transfers after that. But the first four, no, not so far. Hmm. The details of how the hacking uh, came to light and was stopped before it did uh, more damage have not really been reported. Bangladesh Bank has billions of dollars in its current account with the Fed, which it uses for international settlements, for trades with other Mm -hmm. companies. (laughs) So so if it wasn't for that typo, they probably would have made up with a billion dollars. Wow. Uh, Bangladesh Bank has said it has recovered some of the money that was stolen, okay, uh, by which they mean the 20 million being sent to Sri Lanka and is working with anti-money laundering authorities in the Philippines to try to recover the original 81 million. Uh, more than a month after the attack, Bangladeshi officials are scrambling to trace the money, shore up security, and identify weaknesses in their system. They said there is little hope of ever catching the hackers, and it could take months before the money is recovered, if it ever is. Okay.
0: <laughs> That's cheery. <laughs> That's good news, right? Yay! So
1: in a follow-up report okay. to that story, uh, we get a little bit of detail about what the security was like at this Bangladesh bank. Mm. Bangladesh's central bank was vulnerable to hackers because it did not have a firewall and used secondhand $10 switches for network computing uh, or to have its network computer connected to the Swift global payment. Oh, no. Secondhand $10.
0: How how is this where you cut back? Billions of dollars. How is this where, yeah.
1: Billions (laughs) of dollars in their current account with the US Fed and they can't afford a couple hundred dollars for a managed switch with VLANs. That gets updates. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I I don't think the Switch was compromised. It was just, it was, you know, the dumb Switch you buy off the shelf at Best Buy. Sure. And so it didn't support VLAN, so they couldn't separate this, you know, extremely sensitive network from the rest of their computers. Oh, boy. And so then if you put your Swift terminals that are going to make transfers for hundreds of millions of dollars on the same network as all your Windows machines, bad things are going to happen. Uh, The shortcomings made it easier for hackers to break into Bangladesh Bank's systems earlier this year and attempt to siphon off nearly a billion dollars using the bank's SWIFT credentials, Uh, said uh, Mohammed Sa Alam, who's the head of the Forensic Training Institute at the Bangladesh Police's Criminal Investigation Department. Uh, Experts in bank security said that the findings, uh, as described by Alam, are disturbing. You're talking about an organization that has access to billions of dollars, and they're not taking even the most basic security. Exactly. Exactly. That's unbelievable. Well, Two Swift unbelievable. engineers came and visited the bank after the heist and suggested that they upgrade the system.
0: Hmm. You might want to do that.
1: Yeah. Bangladesh police said uh, earlier this week that they identified 20 foreigners involved in the heist, but they appear to be the people who received some of the payments rather than those who actually stole the money. Sure. Of course. Easy to get those guys. Uh, the Swift room is roughly 12 feet by 8 feet and is a windowless office located on the 8th floor of the bank's annex building. Uh, there are four servers and four monitors in the room. The Swift f- uh, facility should have been walled off from the rest of the network like it is walled off from the rest of the bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, this could have been done if the bank had used more expensive managed switches, which allow engineers to create separate networks. <laughs> Just unbelievable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, my kingdom for a VLAN. <laughs> Or I'd give you a billion dollars to be able to make a VLAN here. <laughs> uh, geez, those are the
0: most expensive $10 switches ever, really.
1: Yeah. So that one made it sound pretty easy. However, uh, there was a second bank that was hit, and there was a much greater degree of sophistication shown in that heist, and it suggests that made of, the attackers of the Bangladesh Bank may have actually been fairly sophisticated. They just didn't have to pull out many tricks in order to pull it off. Mm. Or because of the... Poor the lack security at that bank. When they did use their stuff, it was just not detected. So uh, a second bank. Yeah, there uh, would
0: be very little like uh, there'd
1: be very little uh, uh, evidence left- to go over like in logs or anything like that yeah, if they're using they're not having any of that. Yeah. Uh, so the second case targeted a commercial bank. Uh, the Swift people have said, although they won't say the name of the bank, it was not immediately clear how much money, if any, was stolen in that second attack. Uh, Swift said in a statement that the attackers exhibited a deep and sophisticated knowledge of specific operational controls at targeted banks and may have been aided by malicious insiders or cyber attacks or a combination of both. Hmm. So, you know, they they knew how Swift worked and they knew exactly what things the bank checked for to see if it to, – to determine if it's fraud right. in order to hide their stuff from that. Yeah.
0: I would uh, say in my past experience working for a bank, that was something we would – I mean, it was pretty much everybody knew that the riskiest attack came from an insider who learned how the system works and saw all the obvious little spots you could exploit.
1: Right. Well, in this particular case, they might not have been insiders, but, you know, the vendors risk controls are fairly common across every bank, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's true.
1: Um, News of a second case came as law enforcement authorities in Bangladesh and elsewhere investigated the February cyber theft from the Bangladesh Central Bank accounted for uh, the. New York Federal Reserve uh, Swift has acknowledged that the scheme involved altering Swift's software to hide evidence of fraud on the transfers so actually making the transfers not be logged properly hmm. uh, but at its but the core messaging system of Swift was not harmed so they didn't attack the Swift network they just modified the software at the one bank so it wouldn't record the transactions um in the second case, Swift said attackers had also used a kind of malware called a Trojan PDF reader hmm. to manipulate PDF reports confirming the messages in order to hide their tracks. So it would uh, the PDF reading software that they replaced the regular reader with uh, would just not show the fraudulent transactions or show them for a small amount that would be a problem. I love that. That's great. They're like, oh, if the amount of the transfer is $20 million, show it as $2,000 or $20,000. Amazing. $20, it's not even going to set off any alarms. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, let's yeah.
0: just get this PDF reader off this uh, link that you Googled for, however, or from an email. Yeah, like, link.
1: If, if you take over the computer, you can just replace, replace it. A, yeah, yeah. The file association or whatever with something that looks like normal. Yeah. Uh, In both instances, the attackers have exploited vulnerabilities in the bank's fund transfer initiation environment uh, prior to messages being sent over Swift. Swift is really trying to cover their ass and saying, it's not us, that's getting hacked, it's just the banks. Um, The attackers have been able to bypass whatever primary risk controls the victims have in place. So the banks, the way they check to decide before they do the wire transfer, it's like, well, if you steal the bank manager's password and start the transfer, you've probably bypassed most of the stuff already. And then if you, you know, modify the PDF reader so it doesn't show the changes, then yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that's great. Say, thereby being able to initiate the irrevocable fund transfer process. In a second step, they found ways to tamper with the statements and confirmations that banks would sometimes use as secondary controls, thereby delaying the victim's ability to recognize the fraud and mm-hmm. possibly claw the money back. hmm So, Yeah. Interesting, too, that FireEye
0: is one of the companies behind the investigation of this, too. They're just all over
1: the news these days. uh, For the Bangladesh one, yeah. Yeah. FireEye. Every time they're uh, the company that investigates one of the big ones, that means they're probably going to be the company that investigates the next big one, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. And also, they're the ones that have the press channels to uh, talk about the investigations they're doing, too. Yep. Uh, Wow, Alan. Well, that's fascinating. Any other thoughts on that story? Nope. All right. Well, then I'll tell you about something else that's great. That's the folks over at IX Systems. Go to ixsystems.com/slash techsnap and grab yourself some infrastructure to run your open source project or your in house application, your website, your production needs can be met by IX Systems, small or huge numbers. We've talked about IX Systems huge numbers systems before. Uh, I admit I do have server MV. Check out this thing. Over 10,000 terabytes. Meet the Jupyter iXR 2212
1: rack mount server. <laughs> so this individual system doesn't have 10,000 terabytes. But uh, so, you know, customer calls us. yeah, we need a machine. Uh, yeah, we, we get uh, 256 gigs of RAM, uh, dual 10-core 2.2 gigahertz processors, mm. and, uh, you know, fill it with uh, a bunch of hard drives. And Aix is like, yeah, sure. And they build, so they custom build it to, to fit all the stuff they want. And yeah, it's all good. And it's like, okay, uh, we'll need uh, 200 of those. And can you also make a 1U version that has an even faster processor? Wow. And the 1U version has dual CPUs, each 10 cores at 3.0 gigahertz. I love much that. More expensive process. One of the things I love about IX
0: is like uh, they work super close with their hardware partners, including Intel. Yes. So that is, well,
1: yeah, in, in particular, also they like a custom designed chassis to fit this <laughs> this workflow. There's the bench of a bunch of them. Holy smokes! Yes. Because oh. they, yeah, they, they ended up buying two hundred of the two U's and hundred and sixty of the one U's. I need that in my life. So wow. uh, that's one of the really interesting things about IX Systems is. You know, they're small enough that they care about each individual customer. And when you call up and ask for one server, they're not like, go away. Right? Sure, they're, yeah. I mean so these guys. Custom, custom, are, they're, they're the ones that make the frame like, as many. Yeah, but they're also they're not going to give you something off the shelf. They're going to custom build every server for each customer. What I love um, about that though but is But they can scale it it's like, oh, you need 360 servers? No problem.
0: We have had, and you know, I know you've heard from especially I heard about it when I go to FES. Uh, listeners who did just that. They started with one one custom rig built they built for something uh, one time, and then they just kept going back after that experience. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. They have white papers there. Go check out these incredible systems powered by Intel processors and backed by an amazing company it has been around for the long haul, and they've really found their groove. With a great bench of staff, check them out. Super support. Alan and I fully recommend them. Systems. Get your hardware from
1: yeah, there. Well, it's the other fighting, crazy thing Just... That 1U, they managed to fit 12 hard drives in the 1U machine. Oh. They're like two and a half inch drives, but still. Oh. It's 750 or 760 gigabytes uh, in, or terabytes, sorry, in 1U. Yeah. This is it's like, what? This server, server MV
0: is legit here. That is legit. That's a good name for it. Uh, Yeah, look at that. Eight
1: 600-gigabyte. Oh, yeah. And then two... uh, 80-gigabyte SSDs. Yeah, and then that's still two slots left over. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, 750
0: terabytes. Oh. (laughs) That's great. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And thank you to iX for sponsoring the TechSnap program. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That's where you guys go to support the show. So Cisco's uh, gang of uh, security
1: experts found a flaw in one of my favorite pile compression utilities. Eh? Hey, tell me about this, actually. Okay. Uh, So Cisco's Talos team has found two flaws in 7-Zip. They say recently Cisco Talos has discovered multiple exploitable vulnerabilities in 7-Zip. These types of vulnerabilities are especially concerning since vendors may not be aware that they are using the affected libraries. Sure. Uh, This can be a particular concern, for example, when it comes to security devices or antivirus products. 7-Zip is supported on all major platforms and is one of the most popular archive utilities in use today. Users may be surprised to discover just how many products and applications are affected. Uh, So in particular, a number of virus scanners, malware scanners, and security products use the 7-Zip library in order to be able to access archive formats. Yeah, absolutely. So like Malwarebytes uses 7-Zip to open up zip files and scan ISOs and all the other file formats. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, that means that an attacker could send you a file that was specially crafted to exploit one of these two exploits. And as soon as your virus scanner scanned it and used the 7-zip library to try to look inside the .zip file or whatever, uh, boom, it runs the exploit. Mm -hmm. And now your system's owned by your virus scanner.
0: Which is sort of like the worst slap
1: in the face ever. <laughs> yes. It's like you didn't have to open the file yeah. or the attachment. It's this like, is supposed to protect retar- me. <laughs> as, you, as it's scanned, when it arrives in your inbox, It could, well, worse is it could also own your mail server scanner. Mm-hmm. Right? And yeah. take over your mail server in addition to taking over the desktop. Right. Oh, jeez. Jeez, But it's not just like um, in the uh, Taylor's article, they include a link to a Google search for the 7-zip license file. And you can just see a huge number of applications that bundle 7-zip and so have to include the license file in their source code. So like the number of projects on GitHub and just, but open and closed source stuff all over the place uses 7-zip. Because why would you write your own archive parser when 7-zip is this great one that everybody knows works and is available open source, right? Uh, so the first one is an out-of-bounds read vulnerability. Uh, in the way 7-Zip handles UDF or universal disk format files.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The UDF file system was meant to replace ISO 9660, which is the .iso files for CD-ROMs and so on, And it was eventually adopted as the official file system for DVDs, you know, DVD video and DVD audio yep. and so on. Yep. And also you can use it on CDs because the old original ISO had like limits on how long files names could be and how many with the depth of directories you could do and all kinds of silly things like that. And UDF just made it a lot better. Uh, so, central to 7Zip's processing of UDF files is the C in archive read file item method. Because volumes can, be more than, or can have more than one partition map, uh, their objects are kept in an v- object vector. To start looking for an item, this method tries to reference the proper object using the partition map's object vector and the partition ref field, uh, which is the long allocation descriptor. Uh, lack of checking whether the partition ref field is actually bigger than the available amount of partition map objects that exist in the image can lead in some circumstances to arbitrary code execution. So Hmm. you could construct a .iso file that when 7-zip opened it would read past the end of the map and load some other code instead. Uh, In particular, because of the way 7-zip works, if you renamed that iso to .zip, it would still... Uh, it would actually still process it as an ISO, not a zip. Uh, You have to, on the command line, you can specify a very specific flag to say, use only this processor to try to open this file. Uh But by default, it looks at the file and tries to guess the right thing because that's what users want it to do. Um, And so, yeah, uh, you could send somebody a tiny ISO file that was just going to clobber their system or whatever. Then they have a second one, Mm -hmm. an exploitable heap uh, overflow vulnerability exists in the Archive NHFS C-Handler Extract Zlib File method, uh, which is part of 7-Zip. In the HFS Plus file system, which is the one for Mac OS X, Yeah, my
0: favorites. I'm uh, on record of just loving HFS, Alan.
1: Love it. But they also use it for their images, the, what are they called, like um, DMG, DMG files. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is like how most Mac software is distributed yeah, and yeah. a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Files can be stored in uh, compressed forms using Zlib. There are three different ways of keeping data in that form depending on the size of the data. So if it's really small, it just gets compressed and stored directly. But uh, for files that are bigger than 3,800 bytes, they're stored as a resource fork and then split into blocks. Block size information and the offsets are kept in a table just after the resource uh, resource fork header. Prior to decompression, the extract Zlib file method reads the block size and its offset from the file. After that, it reads the block data into static size buffer buff. There is no check whether the size of the block is bigger than the size of the buffer, uh, which can result in a malformed block size, which exceeds dimension buff size. This can cause a buffer overflow and subsequent heap corruption. uh, And then you could cause it basically, you could modify the header to actually say the block is much bigger than it is, and it'll read that bigger size. And so you get the Set the data, and then you get all of you know, your exploit or whatever <laughs> and throw that in memory and start running it.
0: Hmm. I was trying to think but, if this were, if there would be any ramifications on iOS since it also uses HFS, but it sounds like this would be more about...
1: Yeah. You, I don't think a, they
0: use DMG images on, on iOS in any capacity. So.
1: Well, even if they did... Uh, well, I imagine maybe you actually download iOS apps that way. I don't know. Uh, maybe but I'm guessing doesn't. the HFS parser in iOS actually checks that the number is valid before mm. using it. Mm. Maybe. They say, uh, sadly, many security vulnerabilities arise from applications which fail to properly validate their input data. You know, if generally 7-Zip assumed that the zip file was trustworthy, mm-hmm. not maliciously built, and obviously that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Uh, both of these uh, 7-Zip vulnerabilities resulted from flawed input validation. Because data can come from potentially untrusted sources, data input validation is of critical importance to all application security. Uh, Talos has worked with 7-Zip to to responsibly disclose and then patch these vulnerabilities. Users are urged to update their vulnerable versions of 7-Zip to the latest version, which is 16.0, as soon as possible. Mm Mm-hmm. Patch your ass. Cisco originally reported this to 7-Zip on March 3rd and then publicly disclosed it on May 10th. I mean, there was about a two-month window where 7-Zip had time to uh, find the problem, develop a patch. And release it and get that out to everybody.
0: Hmm. Oh, 7 zip. <clears throat> so uh C V E twenty sixteen twenty three thirty-five and C V E twenty sixteen twenty three thirty-four, for those of you keeping track at home. Uh interesting, Alan. Good find. And uh, I think
1: probably a lot of our audience uses seven zip. Yeah. So uh it'd be cool to see some feedback on people finding seven zip in like the strangest place. That like, would I, be I knew it shows up in uh like the from the google link they had uh in the article there I found Malwarebytes, uh and they have you know this pdf file they give out that has all the licenses for all the open source stuff they use uh which is pretty typical you know sony has the same thing for the playstation and that's how you can find all the bsd copyrights um but yeah if people find 7zip in really strange places that'd be interesting
0: yeah uh, i wonder if you know i wonder if too things like maybe clamav uses uh, at least some of the 7zip libraries and whatnot for scanning mails and incoming emails and whatnot yep. Uh, speaking of setting up your uh, own server no, to do that, I wonder. Can, with.
1: Like the, the FireEye device
0: probably does. <laughs> probably, it's probably just yeah. Run exactly. Setting up your own server has never been easier with DigitalOcean. Go to DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code SnapOcean. That's a uh, that's a promo code to get yourself ten dollars of credit over there. At the DigitalOcean, I got it right here in paper too. It Says right here, if you use this promo code, you hear that? That's my paper sound effect. Sna- it's real though. It's real paper, Alan. I'm not using the soundboard. I would. I, I could tell. You can tell because it sounds real, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, SnapOcean, one word, all lowercase, will give you a $10 credit. I got it right there in writing. DigitalOcean is a great place to go spin up your own infrastructure whenever you need it. If you're testing out something, if you're putting it in production, heck, if you're playing around with them containers or jails, you can do it up on DigitalOcean. Just go over there and use our promo code to support the show and get started in less than 55 seconds. Starts only $5 a month. Then you have all SSDs, so. All your storage options are super fast. It starts though with the $5 plan, you get 20 gigabytes of SSD storage, 512 megabytes of RAM, and a terabyte of transfer. And they have data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Germany, and Toronto. I love their interface though. That's where they nailed it. I mean, they nailed it with SSDs too, but I mean, I love this super nice UI and the API that is a companion to this, isn't just a secondary thing that they just kind of included. It is a super sweet, straightforward API. We're we're not like the biggest experts here at Jupyter Broadcasting, but we've looked at this API and thanks to not my hard work, but many others' hard work, we have really solid implementations to manage droplets just using the API. Even though they have such a great interface, just taking that one more notch like, example, another example is their DOCTL application. It's a command line utility for your rig to manage your droplets. I combine that with the Gwake drop down terminal, and it is like, I, I, it, it finally feels like 2016. It is such a great system, such a sweet interface. Check them out at digitalocean.com. Just use the promo code SNAPOcean. Try them out. They even have free BSD. You can try it out yep. for uh, two months for free using the promo code SNAPOcean. Lots of uh, pre-setup packages of, installa- of software to you that will get deployed, all upstream sources, all valid security keys, really, really well done, using open source software on the back end to do all of it, and then they combine it with excellent documentation. Like they have a they have one up there that I think is pretty good, Initial Server Setup on Ubuntu 16.04 if you're kind of new to that. Mm-hmm. Lots of good tutorials. Same stuff for the BSDs. I,
1: I'm, I'm excited about this. ZFS coming to DigitalOcean.
0: Yeah, oh boy, mm. and
1: block storage. Curious about that yeah. too. Well, I, I imagine the two are actually related. <laughs> mm. Oh my gosh. Mm. Ooh,
0: DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SnapOcean and a big thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, so it is hard out there for banks these days. This is we've released. This has been coming. Poor security for decades. Uh, massive bureaucracy that slows down uh, technology deployments. So what happened? And this is, a, I guess, a rather large Middle East bank. I don't know the details, though.
1: I don't, uh, so this, these two particular stories are about breaching the banks for reasons other than stealing money. Okay. Oh. Uh, in particular, these two appear to be more politically motivated. Uh-huh. So in this one, the uh, Qatar National Bank uh, had a massive collection of documents stolen and then leaked and posted online via Cryptome. Uh, Cryptome being... A website for disclosure of information, kind of like WikiLeaks, except for figure like fifteen years older than WikiLeaks. You know, it's been (laughs) it's since long before anybody even dropped up WikiLeaks. Uh, But Cryptone is basically a website for hosting that stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, The leaked data, which totals 1.4 gigabytes, includes uh, internal corporate files and sensitive financial data from the Qatar National Bank's customer. Customers, uh, cryptome reports the leak contains 15,460 files, uh, containing details including passwords, PIN numbers, and payment card data, so credit cards, oh for hundreds of thousands of bank customers' accounts. Multiple experts have also examined the data and likewise report that it appears to be legitimate. But cryptome offers no insight into how the data was obtained, for example, if it was via an external hack or an inside job. Yeah, of course is not going to say that. That would, you know, mm-hmm. disclose information about the the person who gave them the data. Anyway, I say uh, multiple sources who have reviewed the data uh, have confirmed that the data appears to be genuine. One researcher speaking on condition of anonymity also confirmed that he has successfully used leaked customer internet banking credentials from the data dump oh to boy. begin logging into the customer's account there at the bank uh, purely for research purposes. Of course, of course. So it definitely seems like it's valid and in current information. Uh, he said that the bank system then sent a one-time password to the customer's registered mobile number, which would serve as a defense against any criminal who might know uh, to attempt to use the leaked data. But maybe not every customer has two-factor set up, right? Yeah, I, I would bet. Unless they force mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Plus, if you have people's, if you have in all this data, it sounds like they probably would have the phone number as well. And, you know, we've seen like in that case in Australia a couple of years ago, where you can usually trick the phone company into moving the phone number mm-hmm. to your phone, right? And then you get the two-factor <laughs> and you win. Yeah. So then IB Times has some more information here and they say, although analysis of the leaked data remains ongoing, there are reports that it contains additional unusual information. Uh, the UK-based digital media news site IB Times, for example, reports that in addition to consumer data, the leaked information also includes documents which, uh, with information On Qatar's al-Sani royal family As well as the broadcaster al-Jazeera Which is partly funded by that same family Really? In addition Some leaked folders are marked Spy And (laughs) uh, gov Intelligence (laughs) Police Security (laughs) and, And contain what appear to be Intelligence dossiers on individuals Wow. Uh, some files contain the dump uh, are labeled as MI6, an apparent reference to the British Intelligence Agency, and others are named after Qatar State Security Bureau, known as the Mukhabarat, as well as the French and Polish intelligence agencies. Interestingly, there is also additional data about mainly foreign bank account holders, hmm. which includes information such as their Facebook and LinkedIn profiles, along with friends associated through those social networks. Uh, this data does not appear to have come directly from the bank. Rather, the person who stole the data uh, used that data uh, from the bank to actually build up these target profiles and figure out that, oh, this person's a British spy and and this person, here's their Facebook and LinkedIn accounts, Hmm. Uh, which is quite interesting. Um, A second breach occurred at Invest Bank in the United Arab Emirates, Uh, and this time a uh, cache of 10 gigabytes of files uh, were stolen from there. Hmm. and dumped online by a hacking group called Bozkurtlar. Grey Which is a Turkish for the Grey Wolves. Uh, on May 7th, the zip file released by the attackers appeared to contain internal files and sensitive financial documents, including invest bank customer data. Uh, the hackers or hacking group appear to have Turkish ties and also claim credit for a similar dump from the Qatar National Bank. Uh, the dump data includes... A massive amount of information tied to invest bank systems, including SQL databases and their backup folders. Uh, speaking on condition of anonymity, one expert who reviewed the data says it appears to date between uh, 2011 and September of 2015. Uh, remember, September 2015 is the end date for this data, so that'll come oh. into play in a minute here when we keep talking. Okay. Customer data included in the leak... Uh, includes copies of ID documents, photographs of individuals, documents related to land purchases like stamp papers and financials, as well as bank statements and nearly 100,000 credit card numbers, including expiry dates in clear text. Uh, however, for this bank, security researchers noted that the password credentials such as passwords and PIN numbers appear to be encrypted, hmm. whereas at the, at the Qatar Bank, they weren't. Okay, good. The dump also contains comprehensive detail on InvestBank's IT setup, including <sighs> clear text credentials for its production systems, switches, routers, virtual machines, and Windows servers, and many of which appear to have been uh, easily guessable vendor default passwords, especially oh. on routers and switches and so on. But basically the hackers included a text file that just basically includes everything you need uh, to, to take over the network, You know, all their research uh, on this guy's network. Um, screenshots of server settings and diagrams of servers and data center layouts have also been found in the dump in addition to details on VPN setups with the bank's branch offices. Yikes. Probably enough in order to connect and pretend you're a branch office at the bank. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: The dump also appears to contain complete details on InvestBank's Oracle FlexCube core banking solution implementation including the cost, deliverables, scope of work, licensing information and the entire database pertaining to the FlexCube implementation. I, I would be interesting to know how much they would pay Oracle for a complete core banking solution. Huh. I'm huh. guessing it has a lot of zeros. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in December of 2015, a hacker broke into invest bank Systems and released records on a couple thousand customers hmm. to prove that he had uh, and demanded a $3 million Bitcoin ransom from the, from the bank. Uh Invest Bank claims that this is not a new hack. It's just the rest of the data from the twenty fifteen hack. Uh, maybe it is possible the original attacker, after not getting paid the ransom Solder. and failing to sell the data, just released it publicly. Or maybe he's yeah yeah I guess yeah that would make sense Because huh? if you if you paid for the data you wouldn't, it wouldn't release, release publicly, it right no. Um, but not unless because the data only covers up to September of twenty fifteen. It does seem possible that. This is the data from back in December of 2015 and not newer stuff. You might release it publicly if you want a journalist
0: to get their hands on it. Maybe there's something in there that you think is worth their sure. attention. But that's, uh, a pretty, that's a pretty far stretch.
1: Yeah. So, you know, you like. But paying for it to then release it publicly doesn't seem to make sense. Not unless you're an activist of some kind.
0: Right. Yeah. So it mu- it if, I, I guess that seems possible. It also seems possible they didn't fix their s and they got hacked again. Yeah. Exactly.
1: <laughs> so um, I don't know which one it is. But because the data only goes up to 20, uh, September of 2015, right, right. it Seems like you know if if they had been hacked this year, uh, it would have gone up to February or something. In sure.
0: This. Yeah. I, I I see that. Yeah. Hmm.
1: But yeah, not a good week to be a bank. <laughs> no. No, and they have a long Actually, list to go. Th- th- don't get it. <laughs> Every day is a good day to be a band. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they don't um. care.
0: This stuff is pocket change to them. They don't care. Uh, but it's not pocket change to you or I, Alan. That's why Ting makes a lot of sense. Techsnap.ting.com. Go there to get a whole new wireless experience. Ting is mobile that makes sense. My mobile service provider, and it is fantastic. You only pay for what you use. It's $6 for the line, and then your your usage on top of it. That's it. Then would, Well, it was, it Also, whatever goes to Uncle Sam. There's that, too. They, Uncle Sam likes his taxes. But So it's minutes, messages, megabytes, your usage, that's it. No imaginary budgets of minutes that you might hit or data pools that you might need. They have a really nice control panel to activate and deactivate and manage your devices. So you can turn lines off. And they have fantastic customer service. Really good, passionate people that actually you get to speak to a real human being. How about that? How about that? Go to techsnap.ting.com to find out more. Try out their savings calculator. That thing is really kind of your litmus test for Ting. If you score well there, you're going to have a good time with Ting. For me, I save $2,000 every two years. (laughs) <laughs> you could do check it out. techsnap.ting.com. com. Great prices. You can just get a SIM card for nine bucks if you have a compatible device. They got them feature phones if you just want to make calls and have battery life that lasts a week. Then they have your low entry point price wise. Generally, they pretty they ching does a really good job of splitting the difference. Like for example, as far as low price Android phones go, LG Volt Two sixty six bucks, Motorola Moto E seventy four dollars.
1: Uh, then no, the second that's, that's definitely not like a. a- Gimped phone that doesn't have any features or something—that's still a full Android phone. I know, right? right? Like for a lot of
0: us, that would do the job. Uh, or especially for a lot of our friends and family members. Seven, and here's the thing: seventy-four bucks for the Moto E second gen, white or black, no contract, nor the termination fee, and you're just paying for what you use. So if you have Wi-Fi, you're getting the whole thing for free. I mean, that is—it's an empowering experience. And then it goes up the ladder really nicely. They got the new Blash—the uh, Blue Dash X. Hundred and three dollars—a really nice Android experience for hundred and three bucks—and it goes up from there. They got the Moto G, they got the Moto X, they got the Nexus five, the Nexus size, they got the Apple size, they got the One Pluses. You get the drift. Even 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 that uh, that big old uh, Samsung S7 right there with the curved edges. Holy smokes! Look at that thing! Look at that thing! And of course, the Internet Phone 6s. All the way, the whole spectrum. Only paying for what you use. No contract. When you go to TechSnap.Ding.com, you get twenty-five bucks off. And if you have a CDMA or GSM phone that's already compatible, which you can check at their site, they're going to give you $25 in service credit. Average monthly bill per device for Ting customers is $23. So it's probably like it did for me. It paid for more than my first month. TechSnap.Ting.com. Thank you, Ting, for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And thanks, everybody, for visiting TechSnap.Ting. And uh, checking out their various features. Speaking of checking out various features, you guys went diving for BSD pearls on episode one forty-two. Alan, what's going on there? That's kind of a catchy title. Uh, we
1: interviewed a developer named Alpha Pearlstein.
0: Oh, very nice. And uh, of course, also the various uh, beastie bits and uh, all the other goodies in the show. Looks like a good one, including. Yep. Uh, uh, but the interview is really good. I think is the shirt still? Is the shirt all wrapped up, Alan?
1: Or is the shirt still uh, going? It in oh, six hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's six hours. So if you're watching live, yeah, go grab it. Teespring.com/slash/bsd uh, now. Uh, I, uh, yeah, if if there's enough people that missed it and they click the order thing after it's over, they'll probably rep- you know if you get at that least ten happen, people that yeah. want it, they will reprint it. You so. just probably won't get it in time for BSD can, but yeah, but you will but, you
0: but you but could this still, still get the only get a shirt. reason we
1: did such a short campaign because yeah. we kind of thought of it late.
0: Yeah, if you if you're not going to BSD can and you want a shirt, then if enough people like I don't even know it's not a ton, but if enough people say. Like yeah, if enough people Pinschirts hit stuff. it, yeah. I don't know what the threshold is, but, yep. And they got sweatshirts, uh, hoodies, T-shirts, various colors.
1: Long sleeve, every, every kind of shirt.
0: Just of a things. nice, just a, you know, just a nice, sharp-looking yeah. logo
1: right there. Yeah, no, nothing. Right above you know, the pocket. I know the other one, you know, had this huge image on the front yeah. and then the name the of the back. The billboard image. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and not everybody wants to rock around with a billboard on your shirt. I understand.
0: I understand. So you guys can find that at com slash now. If you're watching this on Thursday, you might actually have time to get the first batch, but otherwise, you could always get the second batch if you don't need it for BSD can. Maybe that might that might just be fine for a bunch of you. Uh, you know, I think I think I'm already in. I think I just placed my order. I think I hope I got to double check with Ange because she always places it for me. But uh, yeah, I got I got a long sleeve. I think and a t-shirt coming for me because I'm good on hoodies for a while. I'm good on hoodies. All right, Alan, with the news all done, it's time for the TechSnap feedback. sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or maybe starting a thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Our first email comes in from Boston. We got a lot of follow-up on how Plex works by you know, uh, using the Plex service and whatnot. And he writes in, in episode 266, you had a couple of questions I thought I would respond to. I have a little bit of a long email, so I'll divide it up here. He says, in your recent show, the Curl Sleeper Agent episode 266, John wrote in and asked about how Plex remote access works and how it's magic. Uh, so I did a bit of digging, I opened up developer tools in Google Chrome, and in the network tab, added the additional column of remote address. It shows all IPs Chrome makes in order to render the Plex web page. Uh, he says, I launched the app and uh, basically made a connection to my Plex server, and then I streamed video from my server through the HTTPS protocol uh, using the HTML5 video tag. And he gives an example of what looks like almost like a really long token URL that Plex generates. Well, yeah, it's
1: like uh, the first thing... I, uh He's probably obfuscated some of the stuff in this, so I don't know w- if it's how much he changed. But it looks like it's IP address or some you know, number based on your Plex. Yeah, then something that Plex service would recognize. Yeah, it's like EC random numbers. Yep. Plex.direct, which is their domain, Plex.direct. Uh, and then the port number is 32400, and then slash library, slash parts, slash 27050. Uh, slash file dot mp4. Yeah. And then there's a token stuck on the end. However, he says the video file also seems to be accessible without the token at the end of the URL, hmm. meaning that if anyone knew the secret part of the URL, that random string there, yeah. uh, they would be able to play the files directly off of your thing Which if they also handy. knew the file name. Um, and we got another email that came. We got several well, emails. Uh, at the bottom, he also says to answer uh, John's remote access question about you know doing something like Plex, but for other things, yeah. Uh, he mentions there's a couple of uh, solutions.
0: Um, wait, before you go, wait before you go off Plex. I just wanted to mention, real quick, we have got a couple other emails that said that Plex does use Universal Plug and Play to open up port 32400. Yeah, so, so. yeah
1: looking at this, the 32400, it would seem like that would still have to be yeah. open. Yeah, and so, so it seems Plex is still using, depending yeah. on port forwarding, just hoping you have UPMP to do exactly. it. Exactly, which we'll seems to be pretty much a safe assumption. Okay, well, so yeah, I, was, I wasn't sure there was a way to do it without other than yeah. having a cloud bridge actually act as a proxy for you.
0: Or uh, if you, I guess maybe Plex might... I bet if I look, they have support documentation on how to open the ports yourself, too. Yep. So, okay, his other part of his email, though, about uh, the remote access questions was also pretty solid. He says, to answer yeah. John's remote access question, perhaps the solution you're looking for is a reverse proxy. Here's some paid and free solutions, which he lists in there. I don't know if anything caught your attention specifically. Yeah.
1: Uh, openport.io looks interesting. There's also forwardhq.com, which is, has, like, graphical walkthrough on how to do port forwarding on, like, every router ever. Nice. Uh, Local Tunnel.me sounds interesting, although I haven't looked at it. Uh, He says, I haven't used any of them uh, yet, mainly because he just uses FreeBSD and forward support like a regular person.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And he says, now a question for the TechSnap team. I was also wondering what to choose for remote access to my home server. I've come up with these three possibilities. A VPN, a reverse proxy from maybe my own provider, uh, poke a hole in my router firewall and enable direct access to FTP, OnCloud, WebDAV, or anything else. Here's my question. Which of those solutions is most secure, and which one of those do you think would be the most easy to use for me and my spouse using all sorts of devices? Thanks for reading my email, and thanks for your answers. Best regards.
1: Okay, so FTP is bad because your password is not encrypted, so use SFTP and SSH and so on. So that's that one. Um, as far as own cloud, web dev, all the other stuff, um, you can poke a hole and then you can access stuff directly and that works fairly well. What about using a DMZ? Uh,
0: like he could yeah. put some of that stuff in a DMZ so he doesn't have to poke a hole yep. into his LAN.
1: Well... In general, that would require having a separate network and yeah. IP at that point, you might as well go with a VPS too. I mean, you well, could uh, just... well, yeah. So, in general, forwarding ports for those particular services probably works very well. Um, if you have a dynamic IP address or something, and it's a problem for you to do that, then your second best option is something like a DigitalOcean droplet running the reverse proxy, uh, so that you have a static IP for mm-hmm. that droplet that you connect to, Uh and then it proxies uh, uh, one way or another, likely what you will do is you'd actually set up a VPN on the DigitalOcean, and you have your house called into the DigitalOcean VPN and make the connection. So when your house's connection goes up and down or IP changes, it still connects to the DigitalOcean droplet, and then as a client, you connect to the DigitalOcean droplet and get proxied over the VPN back to your house. That way, you don't have to punch anything out, and you can always access it. Nice. Uh,
0: There could possibly be an answer in this next email, too. John writes in. He says, hi, guys. I just want to let you know that the technology behind the own cloud proxy service that we discussed in last week's episode is an open source project called PageKite. It doesn't just proxy HTTP and HTTPS, but will also forward certain other TCP connections. Uh, So the guys who developed PackageKite also created MailPile. Just for some context, all the best. John, the nice guy.
1: Well, that seems to be an extra thing for that... uh, uh, an extra vote for that page kit, which was on the top of the list the yeah.
0: from the of the ones in first Yep. So, I agree. That actually, you know yeah. what, is something I'm going t- to write that down right now. That's probably <clears> something <throat> worth uh, taking a look I'm at. I'm a little huh?
1: spoiled. I, I've, I've had uh, a static or close to static IP address for so many years now. Yes. Fact. And yes. then I've, I've owned my own server since I was like 17. So I've, I've always, uh, well, that's page kit. Yeah. Kate. Nope. Nope. That is not PageKite. <laughs> I'm like, what is PageKit?
0: What is that? Oh, this is something to make it really easy to make your own CMS and website. Uh, not what I want. Nope. I want PageKite. Here we go. Look at that. Huh? That looks like the right stuff. Uh, I'll put a link. You know what? Right now in the uh, in the show notes too. While we got it, so that way if people want to take a take a reference to that, they can find it there. The show notes are at JupiterBroadcasting.com. Saw us on the
1: screen, really, Chris? <laughs> don't look. Don't
0: look. Uh, I know, and it's a lot of secret sauce, Alan. You put a lot in there. 2,600 so. words. Boom. I will uh, put a link to that right there in those. So now we have even more than 2,600 words. Uh, okay, so let's take our next email. It's about storing client-sensitive data by, I'm going to say, Vitas. He writes in and says, I want to find an easy, secure way to store clients' info. And by info, I mean passwords to other routers, their servers, their external IP addresses to those things, et cetera. In some situations, even a password to maybe their email accounts. It should be stored securely, but easy to access from everywhere. I'm learning to use, I'm leaning to use PaaS, firing up some server on DigitalOcean, installing PaaS, and accessing it from a portable putty or maybe a terminal session
1: through SSH. But maybe you have another solution. And I bet you do, Alan. Yeah, um... Basically, every one of the popular password managers usually has something called like secure notes or something. Like I know in LastPass, I can put in like my Wirecast serial number, uh, like my uh, product key, so that I don't lose that and don't have to dig through my email to find it like a year from now when I reinstall Wirecast or whatever. And you know, we have notes in there for just like, oh, here's the phone number for the support for this company, you know, that goes with this account in case we need it, or you know other secure notes and things of that fashion where you could store router stuff. Uh, and the the pay version of LastPass has team support so that you could give a team access to, say, the router passwords, uh, but still have them secure and so on. Um, but yeah, any solution like that usually has something to store, not just passwords, but maybe other things like IP addresses or or just notes or whatever you want to store. What about just a
0: sophisticated... Custom-
1: Directory file system secured with something like g p. g or something uh well g p g can only encrypt one thing at a time, so like gets a little more complicated, but yeah, uh basically, any type of encryption should work. it's just mm. yeah,
0: I guess if he uh, wants access it to do it anyway, lastpass is like probably
1: this. your best, yeah, because there's apps for everything and and yeah. you know there are lots of competitors to LastPass that are basically the same thing, if, yeah, and know, pass is great uh, too I think was like KeyPass has. Can use WebDAV and you can host the database yourself, so that nobody else has the the encrypted data. Uh, so something like KeePass on your own DigitalOcean, where you set up a Web yeah. uh, WebDAV or whatever, to means you can use the KeePass app on multiple machines or whatever. But the actual encrypted data store lives on a DigitalOcean that you control, not you know, opaquely somewhere in LastPass's cloud.
0: And and uh, to specifically, Carl, in my experience, my solution Pass on a, on a Droplet has been working pretty well for me. So that could probably work pretty well for you. Uh, so a couple of different options there. Check out KeyPass for sure. Uh, tell me about this. This one ended up in the feedback, too. Ethical hackers donating uh, air miles to a charity. This is, <laughs> how did this end up in the feedback, Alan? Uh,
1: well, because it's about, what um, do you call it there? The charity? Oh, ah, it's because it's not really a news story. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the researchers uh, did the United Airlines bug bounty of a million air miles. Uh, and they're like, oh, okay, uh, but it turns out. <laughs> oh, I you know, see. That's when you're you're basically getting paid, right? Yeah. So if you're getting paid a cash bug bounty, mm-hmm. then you know there's tax on that, and you would pay it out of the bug bounty and whatever, right? But uh, apparently, an air mile has a value of two cents. Oh, and okay. So a million air miles uh, is. Mm-hmm. $20,000 mm-hmm. in revenue that they just made. <laughs> well, the IRS is going to want their tax on that. Yeah. And uh, you know, there's a link there where somebody did the tax calculation, and was like, well, that could mean they owe up to $7,500 in taxes or more, depending on how much money they're actually making a year and so on. Uh, so, you know, if you get $20,000 as bug bounty and have to pay out $7,000 of his tax, you still made $12,000. But if you get a million air miles that you're probably not going to use right away, uh, and suddenly, have to an unexpected tax bill for $7,500 is like, uh-oh, right? Um, and so, they decided to donate it to a charity instead to avoid having to pay the $20,000. Oh, there you go. Uh, the tax on the $20,000 There you bill. go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, there you go. Yeah, if you, unless you fly a lot and want to fly a lot for free, then a million air miles is not necessarily that useful. Yeah, really. Um, if you have a like question. If, if you so, fly a lot, then it's probably pretty good, but... Yeah, it's still, yeah, then even still, he you still make it that out. much United? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: we like your questions, and we want more of them. We have a couple in our inbox, like literally, like maybe one or two, but we need a lot more. Send them in, text snap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Go over to the contact page, send in your question, and thank you, everybody, for following up. Uh, we got we had a few more that we couldn't read on air just because some of them were fairly repetitive, but some of them had little extra stuffies in there, so it was really nice. And uh, we just have the contact form. You don't even have to use the old email address in your f- dirty, filthy inbox. I know what it's like. I have email anxiety, too. I don't want to open up my email client. You just go to jupiterbroadcasting.com contact, choose TextNet from the dropdown, and send it in, and we will answer it on a future show. But with the emails all done, that means it's time for the TextNet <laughs> Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means on the roundup for stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to read more on your own after the show and go through some of these with you, and several, I mean like probably a handful of these links came from our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. This first one, for example, came from the subreddit. A federal judge says that the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine is a perfectly legitimate source of evidence. Uh, yeah, there you go. What do you think of that? The Wayback Machine is a useful source of evidence, the judge says.
1: Yeah, but how do you prove the, that the information in it is definitely valid? Like, I understand the Internet Archive is relatively impartial, but I don't know. It doesn't seem like it quite has the, the level of standard you need for...
0: Evidence. I guess in one case, it showed the bogus non-disparagement clause that ClearGear used to go after unhappy customer, which wasn't even in place when the customer ordered the product that never arrived. So, you know, yeah. there you go. Interesting, though. That's just I thought was worth noting. You saw the Black, ba- Black Blaze report came out one billion <laughs> yes. drive hours and continuing. So, this is their Q1 2016 report. Yes.
1: Yeah, so, this is their details on uh, hard drive failure rates and so on. Yeah. Interestingly, uh, the Seagate drives are performing very well, as we expect this time. Mm. Uh, and you see they have a lot of them. So the, the table, you can see they have different drive sizes, 2 terabyte, three, four, six, eight 4, 6, 8 terabytes, etc. Uh, and you can see they've also retired some of the older drives over time. Uh, and they see that in total, they have 61,523 hard drives, uh, well, sorry, uh, they actually have 61,590 hard drives. Yeah. The list doesn't include failure stats on a couple of drives if they have less than 45 of them uh, because of failures or whatever. And, Man, that's when you're uh, rolling in particular, drives. Like there's the one, the three terabyte Toshiba drive looks really bad with like an 8.6% failure rate. Yeah. But it's because one failed out of 47. And so that's... Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That would skew it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, then they look at cumulative failure rates over time and you can see that, you know... Uh, some of the drives, obviously, are like the six terabyte drive, none of them failed in 2014 because it didn't exist yet in 2014. Sure. Uh, and then the verse is also true. You know, there's no failure stats on the 1.5 terabyte drives in 2016 because they were all phased out by then. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and they actually show their different models and the number of hours of service. We can see that in total, their uh, Seagate four terabyte drives have been running for 13.5 million days collectively. Uh, and they're talking a lot in, in total that adds up to a uh, a billion drive hours. And then they show a breakdown of manufacturers. Currently, they're 45% Seagate, 51% uh, Hitachi, 3.4% Western Digital, and 0.3% Toshiba. And they actually go on to explain that. Uh, they say the earlier HDSC uh, drives, especially the two and three terabyte drives, have lasted a long time and have provided excellent service uh, over their several years. This time in service currently outweighs the sheer number of Seagate four terabyte drives which you've purchased and placed in service in the last year or so. Uh, And then they have a breakdown just below that. The next ring chart shows uh, size of drive as it makes up the collection of their drives. So you can see, you know, only one percent of their drives are only one terabyte. They have four point two percent that are one point five, and then they have twelve percent two terabyte. 22% 3 terabyte, and then the bulk of their drives, about 60% are 4 terabyte. Mm-hmm. And then they've squeezed in some 5, 6, and 8 terabyte drives. Yeah, not much. So they say the 5 terabyte drives add up to 580 million service hours because they have 48,000 4 terabyte <laughs> drives. <laughs> uh, and each one on average has been running for 500 days so far, or 1.4 years. Then they have uh, the reliability chart, and we can see interesting trend that drives are getting more reliable over time. Hmm, Although yeah. part of that is, uh, part of the high unreliability was, um, especially in 2014, the lengths uh, Black, Backblaze was going to to get drives, including buying external drives and breaking them out of the case and so on. Yeah, I remember. And those drives, especially, had a really high failure rate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, that kind of skewed things, which is and, which is an interesting lesson in its own. It's like, what are they doing with those drives that go in those external enclosures? Are they lesser quality well, they're bins usually drives? Usually lesser qualities in the first place. Secondly, the process—you know—they outsourced the breaking them out of the container. Oh, right. Yeah. So yeah, you know how how well was it done, and how carefully was Good that point. done? Good so, point. But uh, looking at the chart, the Toshiba dr- or sorry, the uh, Hitachi drives are very reliable with an annualized failure rate of only like one percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, ignoring the bad period for uh, the Seagate external drives they were using, the main the 36,000 drives they have in 2016 have a nice 3.4% yeah. failure rate, yeah. which actually beats out the Western digital drives. Although, and is about even with the Toshiba, although the Toshiba, they have so few drives, the numbers are less meaningful. Uh, and then they explain why, you know, sometimes they, how do you end up with less than 45 of one model of drive if you put 45 drives in each server. It's like, well, sometimes we make these uh, Franken-pods with different models of drives. <laughs> or sometimes when we were doing the drive farming and the shucking thing with the external drives, meant we got all kinds of different ones. Because you know, if you go to the store and buy 10 uh, 3-terabyte external drives, you're likely to get a lot of different models inside there. Right. Uh, but they also explain why they have so few Toshiba and Western Digital drives. You see, we often get asked why we don't buy more Western Digital and Toshiba drives. The short answer is we've tried. These days, we need to purchase drives in reasonably large quantities, like five or 10,000 at a time. This helps keep the unit cost down, right? You get a much bigger discount if you buy 10,000 drives at a time. Uh, It keeps the unit cost down and uh, makes sure that, you know, they're going to have the drives when they need them. Uh, For Toshiba, we've not been able to find their drives in sufficient quantities, Basically, nobody stocks that many Toshiba drives. Toshiba's not really that been, been that big of a brand, and so a lot mm-hmm. of the, the supply chain places aren't going to stock 5,000 or 10,000 Toshiba drives. Yeah, it makes sense. Especially since they're usually more of a consumer thing, right? Uh, for the Western Digital, we've tried. Uh, we sometimes get offered a good price for a quantity that we need, but before the deal gets done, something always goes sideways and the deal doesn't happen. This has happened to us multiple times, as recently as last month. Uh, we'd be happy to buy more drives from Toshiba and Western Digital if we could. Until then, we just continue to buy our drives from Seagate and uh, Hitachi hmm. in large quantities. And then they talk about why they still use so many four terabyte drives, you know. Uh, the main thing is the four terabytes drives versus the five, six, eight and 10 terabyte drives is the price per terabyte, right? When you're buying thirty, forty thousand 40,000 drives, uh, the price per terabyte is like the only thing that matters. You yeah. Know? In, in the end, it's cheaper to buy more chassis than it is to pay for more expensive drives. Yep. Uh, the primary, uh, in addition to that, the other problem is quantities. You know, mm. these newer drives are new and so they haven't actually produced that many of them yet. Mm-hmm. And when a shipment comes from Asia or whatever of these hard drives, they get split up between all the different suppliers. And so you can't just buy 10,000 10 terabyte hard drives mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they only make so many a month and they're getting kind of spread out all over the place to fill everybody's needs. Uh, and so four terabyte drives they can buy by the truckload. And sure. so that's what they do.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that that seems yep. pretty practical.
1: Uh, I love these they, reports. Yep, they, they build uh, 1,200 hard drive Vaults, which is twenty storage pods at a time, and they're filling three of those vaults. uh, So that's like you know 3,600 hard drives a month they need to buy. And so, you know, they use four terabyte drives because they can buy them. Uh, They also talk about when they consider a drive failed, which is it won't spin up or can't. The OS doesn't see it, Mm. or it's so slow it can't keep up with the RAID array Mm. because you know, it's failing and retrying and stuff. Or and they also have a link to the some of the smart stats they use. People often ask, you know, what smart stats matter? Check out that article there. Yeah. That's nice of them to include that.
0: Yeah. You know what else is nice? Uh, This report, following up from the report we covered last week about the FBI possibly being able to access your computer if they detect you have Tor installed remotely. A small group of bipartisan senators have introduced a bill on Tuesday that would block that ruling change. Uh, The Republican Senator Steve Daniels and Democrats Tammy Baldwin and John Tester are co-sponsoring Stopping Mass Hacking Act. Uh, and uh, Senator Wyden, or uh, let's see here, it goes on. He wasn't involved in that, but there. Oh, oh, yeah. There's companion legislation that's going to be expected in the House soon that he will be behind. That's what it is. So we are seeing uh, legislation come together to try to actually stop the story that we covered last week. That basically just by having Tor installed gave the FBI grounds to hack you, wherever you are. So good to see that, and the, I like the name too: Stopping Mass
1: Hacking Act.
0: Yeah. It kind of puts it on the nose, doesn't
1: it? <laughs> well, you could put the FBI in check act. It probably wouldn't go over so much. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: like that one more, though. Uh, okay, so tell me about this latest Windows problem here.
1: Yeah, so uh, they actually found a way to bypass EMET, which is the Advanced Mitigation or whatever it's called. Uh,
0: advanced it it? Mitigation what? Uh,
1: Something Toolkit. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> Emergency, probably. No, uh, basically EMET is this uh, extra thing you can install on in Windows that makes it much more secure by in it turning up the security. Microsoft Enhanced device. Mitigation Experience Toolkit. Yes, experience. <laughs> that's, that's the word I didn't get. <laughs> um, well, it turns out WoW 64, which is the Windows subsystem for backwards compatibility mm-hmm. to let you run 32-bit apps and so on, mm-hmm. uh, basically can bypass all of that. And oh. so... Uh, Basically, the EMAT thing is useless because the Windows backwards compatibility allows you to go around it entirely. Well,
0: of course it does, too, right? Yeah. Well, well you know, the whole point of EMAT is supposed to punch up the security. I love it. That's great. Um, okay, so we got a Cisco adaptive security appliance, VPN memory block exhaustion vulnerability that you should know about. Cisco labels it a medium. You know those uh, Cisco VPN appliances that are super popular? Mm-hmm. Uh, this affects Cisco ASA software, so that's probably a lot anyone that runs that. Uh, and there is no workaround that addresses the vulnerability at the moment. you just got to go get your updates. Uh, the affected Cisco projects are listed in the article, of course, but I wanted to get the info out to the staff audience. Mm-hmm. I love this. How do you dispense of three petabytes of disk? How do
1: you? Yeah, so before they used like a drill press and just drilled holes in the yep. drives a couple times. I'm mm, Sure. But they had fewer drives then, and this time they're like, we have a lot of drives. What are we going to do? Well, there's a video at the bottom. Uh, basically, they managed to find somebody with an industrial-strength shredder. Wow. They filled up their SUV here with hard drives and uh, threw them in the shredder.
0: That's incredible.
1: Now, I hope they came up with a way of getting the drives in there that didn't involve throwing each of the hard drives manually into the shredder. It kind of looks like it does, though, doesn't it? Yeah. But the other interesting thing is when you see they come out the bottom, sometimes there's sparks sparks from the metal, and they're going into a cardboard box. (laughs) Yes. But apparently, it was okay. Uh, wow. Now, yeah. At the end of the video, they actually show the result uh, of these hard drives.
0: Oh, wait a minute. Maybe there's another uh, or maybe they, I think there's another picture. Yeah, here it is. Here it is.
1: Or Maybe just a static picture. At the bottom. There it is. Yeah. And you stick a shovel in there, you just see mangled bits of, bits of metal. Yikes. That's uh, one way to do it. Yep, and they filled quite a few of these uh, cardboard boxes with them. That's That's um, how you do it. In particular, so Shadow Server is one of these things where they collect botnet data, Hmm. and a lot of people uh, submit their data uh, to these guys. And so they have to take care to destroy it properly when they're done with it, uh, because you gave them data that could be sensitive from inside your network, right?
0: Yeah. Interesting story. Thanks for putting that in there, Alan. Fast.com. Fast.com is a tool from Netflix to check how fast your internet connection is really simply. Uh, it's no fancy ads and graphics. Um, interesting, when I ran this earlier, it came in at 88, and today now it comes in at uh, 72. And then they have a link to compare it on speedtest.net. And this is just something I bet would even work On the Android browser or something like that, Uh, It's
1: supposed to be all just HTML5.
0: Yeah, which is Uh, really nice. You just go to fast.com in your web browser, and you can test. Of course, they also managed to also acquire slow.com for the same thing. Oh, that's brilliant. And now, of course, this is really probably best for those of you that are maybe trying to get an idea of what kind of Netflix experience.
1: Exactly. Uh, The idea is... For you to actually have something you can yell at your ISP about. So,
0: uh, yeah, I'm on the web browser here, which is kind of hard to see. Yeah, there you go. I'm getting Eight. 68. That's pretty good
1: over Wi-Fi. Yeah,
0: yeah, 802.11n. And uh, 72 right now on the uh, on the desktop. Um, yeah, so there you go, fast.com. Uh, that's pretty neat to troubleshoot uh, your Netflix experience. Tell me about the CVE. looks like maybe something from Red Hat.
1: Yes. So this is. Remember the ping of death? Yeah. Right Hell yeah. Back oh yeah. Oh yes. Day? I Loved it. Uh. Yeah. So they have that now. No. In the Linux kernel. Oh damn. This it. is only Linux kernel RT. I don't <laughs> know what that actually means, but uh, real time, I would imagine. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't but know. But basically, when you send um, uh, an ICMP message with a specific payload in it, it will uh, trigger, allow you to run sys request commands. Jeez. It basically it simulates pressing uh, that certain the sysRQ rq button on your keyboard. Yeah, uh, and it turns out that any user can read that what the secret sequence is out of your slash proc, and then send the pang and Blah. <laughs> Boom.
0: Well, I'm glad they found that. <laughs>
1: and there's no workaround currently. No way to disable it. So patch your kernel. Yeah. Patch now, your S. This is not the kernel that Red Hat ships in their Enterprise Linux, but it's in a lot of different kernels, apparently. And, uh, yeah, they even provide the command in order to yeah. pong the server with it. Uh, Seems look, pretty terrible. Yeah, Drawer in the chat
0: room says that Linux RT is the real-time patch Linux kernel which I think is that matches up. Uh, so this, you know, freaking advertising trackers are just getting ridiculous. Uh, and so sites are turning to audio fingerprinting to track users. Researchers from uh, Princeton University are conducting a privacy survey of the top 1 million websites discovered, you know, the one well, top 1 million ranked by Alexa, I should say, discovered on a variety of tracking identification techniques in those sites, including a novel tactic that uses audio signals to fingerprint machines and browsers. In the study, they, re- they saw that uh, websites were using HTML5 audio content Context API to fingerprint visitors. At least two different ways they saw of doing this, including one technique that produces an audio signal and then uses a script to process it. In the simplest case, a script from the company uh, LiveRail checks for existence of an audio context and oscillator node to add a single bit of information to a broader fingerprint. More sophisticated scripts process an audio signal generated with an oscillator node to fingerprint the specific device. This technique appears to be conceptually similar to the canvas fingerprinting of a fingerprint, Princeton study says." Uh, There's also
1: other ones, though. So, are they using a microphone or something? Because your device should ask you not let just anybody use your microphone. I don't know. Yeah.
0: You know, because I would think you could do it, though, without that, if there's a way to play it in the browser and capture it using another script, if it was something unique to the machine. Because uh, it says here, in order to fingerprint the browser, the machine visiting site, uh, researchers discovered the hash the hash, the signal produced by the oscillator node and use that as an identifier, they say. The researchers said that the live rail script on the site they surveyed simply checks for the presence of an audio context API and then adds that to the overall fingerprint. So something about checking for the context of, the, uh, of checking the audio context API is how they generate the fingerprint. It doesn't say using the microphone. Isn't that fascinating, Alan? Freaking advertising tracking. I'll read more about this, though, because you have to wonder. They talk about also about other companies that are trying to do this uh, in Android apps and whatnot. Uh, we have one here from Softpedia. Fake hacker found guilty of gutsy Mitt Romney extortion scheme.
1: Oh, so he didn't really yes. do it, but if he's still remember, getting busted. If you remember from the last presidential election, which it seems like the U.S. is always having one of these. Yeah, it does. It goes on for four years. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you remember way, way, way back then, we actually covered this story when... Some guy said he hacked into Mitt Romney's tax attorney's computers yep. and stole his tax returns and was trying to get what was like $100,000 worth of Bitcoin at the time. Although that much Bitcoin would be worth a lot more now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he tried to get uh, all this money out of it, and eventually, you know. One million, million Bitcoin. When the deadline came, he obviously didn't do anything about it because he didn't actually have the file. So anyway, in the end, it turned out, yes, it was fake. But... Um, you know, trying to extort people is still illegal, and so he's uh, going to prison and owes uh, a quarter million dollars in fines. And wow.
0: That wasn't worth it. Oh, wasn't worth yep. it. So the controversial Wi-Fi sense feature on Windows 10 is quietly being turned off by Microsoft on certain machines. Microsoft disabled the controversial features, writes Krebs, a component embedded in Windows 10 devices that shares access to Wi-Fi networks to which you connect with any contact you may have listed in Outlook and Skype, which, by the way, Afterwards, you I can opt into this. You can also share it with your Facebook friends. Yeah. <laughs> Microsoft made the announcement almost as a footnote in the Windows 10 Experience blog, but the feature caused quite a stir when the company's flagship operating system first debuted it last summer.
1: Well, for me, that'd be really bad because my Skype list has yeah. a huge number of people in it from A, work stuff, but also from I, every person I've ever interviewed on BSD now is in my Skype list now. So that's 150 extra people that don't need my Wi-Fi. Although anybody I've interviewed on BSD now was welcome to have my Wi-Fi at my house. There you go. But probably the rest of the people on the list aren't. Yeah. I wouldn't let Chris use my Wi-Fi. No.
0: You you know what's on my Android device? I don't even know. Who knows? Probably some weird operating system. Okay, so
1: this next one is is great. Just amaze the crap out of me. My email doesn't work on Tuesdays.
0: What? No, Printer. Oh, okay. All right. All right.
1: So, oh, yes. sorry. My printer even doesn't work on that Tuesdays. the user reported it reports yeah. this is a fascinating bug. Printer,
0: yeah. My, yeah. He says, my so, wife complained that she couldn't print on Tuesdays.
1: <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> you, when you hear somebody that maybe isn't necessarily a computer expert say, the printer works fine except on Tuesdays. I can never print on Tuesdays. You're like, really? Does that even make any sense? What does the printer care what day of the week it right. is?" Right. Turns out, yeah, it's actually a bug. So uh, when you print, it's actually making a PostScript file, which basically text instructions to the printer that explain what it should do. Uh, and for some reason, you know, when you print it, you get this creation date. And if it it does the date in a stupid format of three-digit day name, three-digit month name, the di- uh, the the day of the month, and then the time and the date or the year. Well, it turns out if that contains the string T U E for Tuesday. Uh, it actually causes problems. So, after the postscript comes out of OpenOffice, when it goes to be printed, it runs through some processor script that does like a sed on it or something. Uh, or no, anyway, it goes, it gets changed a couple of times. But in the end, when the before the file is sent to the printer, the script runs the file command on it, right? And so the file command, you give it a file, and it tells you what type the file is by looking at, you know, uh, indicators in the file like mm-hmm. magic byte strings and so on. Well, it turns out if TUE are the fourth, fifth, and sixth byte in the file, then file incorrectly reports that the file is (laughs) a uh, Erlang Jam file rather than the PostScript file. So if it says any other date, or even if you just put the letter X in front of the Tuesday, as in the article they show here, they call it X Tuesday, um, then the file shows up as PostScript. Uh, But if it says Tuesday on the first line it basically gets confused and thinks it's an Erlang Jam file. Uh, and because of that, it's like, oh, that's that's not uh, a PostScript file, so I'm not going to send that to your printer. And so the printing doesn't work. Amazing. <laughs> uh, and so he implemented a, a small hack by basically doing a search and replace of the uh, lower casing the T in Tuesday hmm. so that it didn't trick file into thinking it was an Erlang file. Right. So the real, the interesting thing is the fix would actually be in the file command upstream. Right. But yet it broke open office printing. Yeah. Now, the guy gets a lot of credit for actually having debugged and sorted out this problem. No kidding. Of posting I can't print on Tuesday. No kidding. Although I imagine they're, if you went back and looked, there might be like a hundred bugs open in Ubuntu, but I can't print on Tuesday. <laughs> and it turns out this it. that it's not a bunch of random people being silly. It's actually a bug right. in the right. file right. command.
0: Oh, it's all about parsing. So uh, this next story, high CPU use by taskhost.exe when a Windows 8.1 username contains user. So if on a Windows 8.1 computer you have a user account with the word user in it, intermittently you will find a process called taskhost.exe that consumes pretty much all your CPU. (laughs) Wow.
1: (laughs) Which is funny because that was like, uh, when I first learned Windows administration at the power plant, we had this user called Nant user for the. Oh Nant yeah, man, backup plant. user. It was just a generic generic user that had no privileges. It was just yeah. the most basic user profile so that yeah. we could test stuff.
0: Yeah, log, log user, and backup yeah. user. I've had user I've had all kinds of accounts like that have user in it before. And you know, you want to know the fix? Here's the here's the quote unquote resolution from the Microsoft site to resolve this issue: Do not create a user account that contains the string user on the computer. <laughs> Yeah.
1: <laughs> Eight dot one so, enterprise. Somebody's name actually has the word user in it or something.
0: Man, that's that's classic. Uh okay, I love this next one. Uh, because it's just a great example of uh, <laughs> okay, I'll start at the top. It's a Kickstarter, it has forty backers. They're trying to raise twenty five thousand dollars. So far they've raised three thousand seven hundred and thirteen with twenty one days left to go. Do you want me to just play a little of the video or
1: uh I don't know. I don't I've never seen the video, but it's oh, okay. the- Data gatekeeper, the first impenetrable anti-hacking software. Yeah, putting hackers out of business.
0: (laughs) That's uh, that sounds like just what I need, actually, Alan. And
1: and and, the AES hacking solutions are readily available for sale on the dark web. It's like if people could break AES, everything would be broken. They just play. If If people could break AES, all SSL encrypted things on the internet would stop working. Like. The world would end if people could easily break AES. When you are watching this, we are hacking your data, <laughs> grabbing your secrets, stealing your identity. Wow. There's an army of us. And playing We're with a yo-yo. We're everywhere,
0: relentlessly tearing apart your patchwork of security. You think you can stop us? You haven't so far.
1: The next wave of the internet requires the next wave of data security.
0: So uh,
1: they're really trying to just sell people they're, on fear and saying, buzzwords. Yeah, they're saying AS is hacked since the 1990s, and SSL is a myth.
0: <laughs> Learn more uh, about our SSL from our continuing series on, on cybersecurity. Cybercriminals know these flaws and backdoor already. Backdoor. Uh, they are stealing, compromising, and profiling from your data every day. With Data Gatekeeper Total Data Protection Software and Safe Data Zone Cloud, you can protect your sensitive tax records, financial statements, credit card statements, health statements, and reports, etc., cetera, from prying eyes with just one click of your mouse. I got to get this. I just I, well, I really want Linux.
1: They talk about the encryption. And on the first, so the, lo, look a little further down for the little uh, check mark. Data plan starting at 512 bit. So let's go down a little bit more. Okay. And there's a the feature comparison grid. Yeah, Anyways. comparing it to Dropbox and Google yeah. Cloud. And- so, so first of all, they're like, we use
0: 512-bit encryption. It's like, okay. Yeah. And by uh, the way, they use uh Google or and Dropbox use 128 KB AES. That's that yeah, first of all, yeah, 128 kilobyte AES yeah.
1: would be really, really secure. <laughs> <laughs> if it actually
0: existed. Well, except for they use 512 kilobyte. Yeah,
1: 512 kilobyte what? DGK. Because DGK. Yeah, Yeah. because 512-byte AES doesn't exist. That's not a thing. Now, of course, they do
0: have the most expensive platform at
1: $130 a month. Yeah. Uh, But, yes, um, I love how somehow their magic encryption that doesn't actually exist and can't actually exist, unlike AES, can stop people from trying brute force attacks.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Because it's like, well... See, when you're brute forcing AES, you're doing it offline, right? So you have the data and you're trying to break it. You're not using the application that, you know, that has like a three-try limit in it. You're brute forcing the data. You're you're not using the intended application. And so there's no way the data can like self-destruct if you, <laughs> you know... The
0: Data Gatekeeper our mathematically impenetrable encryption engine provides 6 million times greater protection than the current 256-bit data security protocols deployed by Google, Facebook, Apple and others. The Data Gatekeeper total data protection software includes complimentary 500 gigabyte of the Safe Data Zone, our unique cloud storage and sharing solution. Mydataangel.com provides impenetrable civil data protection plans starting at 512-bit encryption.
1: Uh, and then it's a little further down they're like, "Oh, we have different versions." There's a 512-bit version which provides 50 years of protections for civilians. But if you're a first responder or police or retired or active duty military, you need 768-bit encryption which 75 say, years of protection. Well, but then it says 73 years. So is it 73 or
0: 75? <laughs> they do down here it says <laughs> And then you got 1024-bit, 100 years of protection for the enterprise. <laughs>
1: Uh, But yes, the big one is here is how hackers uh, use automated brute force software to steal your password. So with their software, they claim there's no um, repetition somehow. Apparently, they're going to block you from trying multiple passphrases. Hmm. How? Is the data going to suddenly – data that's read-only is somehow going to change itself? No, that's not how that works. They have a they have a video episodic series that they're posting
0: to connect the growing network of data I'm angels Joseph. with the Kickstarter community. Data the data gatekeeper protects you with the most mathematically advanced,
1: simple to I don't know what's it's happening. Time. Yeah, it's I think simple.
0: so, I think so. But that what is a
1: nice timeline about these different hacks here.
0: Look at this; they have like a, a comic. They have like a comic that they've done.
1: They've done a lot here. Uh well, then if you actually look at their their staff here, at the team at the bottom, it was okay. CEO, a president, a chief strategy office. Oh, I office. Officer. Hmm. No, he's got an office. Uh, a creative director, a uh, data angel host for their video series, an advisory board, another host, and an advisory board, and a skeleton who's their celebrity. And they have one lady who's their cat herder and code manager. Oh, boy. Or code manager. They don't have anybody that's building the software.
0: <laughs> There's not a single Data data Angel host and Data Angel uh, and host for Chad and Jensen. And Jensen's it, it, up in the video up here. She's talking right now. I can't get her to stop. I've tried to... If your friends are protecting their data like you're protecting theirs, these hackers will very quickly... Here comes a skeleton. ...have no other place to go. Safeguarding your data, protecting your future. Not a very Thanks good
1: host either. But... And, and I love it. If you pay for the, the top Kickstarter part at the end, you become a data angel executive producer.
0: Ooh, I like that. That's right up my but, alley. I like producers.
1: But what does that have to do with protecting your data?
0: I don't know, but I, I don't...
1: Sure.
0: I'm a producer in your video series or something. Compatibility is, with Windows XP so through Windows 10, Android 4.1 through Current, Apple OS 10 and iOS. Well, I'm out. I'm a Linux user.
1: I'm this out. This is completely bogus crapware will never actually exist and should be kicked off Kickstarter for being fraudulent. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, well, her, we end with a but, nice... You know, uh, hopefully they don't get any of the money because the money they wasted making these videos hopefully will teach them a lesson about <laughs> making up fake shit.
0: <laughs> I love that they don't have a single developer listed. Uh, okay, so do you know how to internet A www picture in story. A picture of the internet, perhaps. This is nice, Alan. Uh, I don't know if we want to read the whole thing.
1: Well, it's it just you. basically shows, you know, so there's the king sitting on his throne, and yeah. he's like, bring me Google. Yeah. And the browser goes out, and uh, to get through the firewall, it has to show its passport. True. Which isn't quite, that, but anyway. Right. Uh, then it finds the signpost out in the road that yeah. shows DNS. IP addresses. Yeah. So DNS server lets you look up the name and find out the IP address and what direction it's in. DNS is a wise owl, apparently, I guess. <laughs> uh, and then you, you walk over to that spot, and then you find the server, which is a tree full of other wise owls. Hmm at the IP address and then you tell it which website you want and then that one tells you you know sign in or I'm feeling lucky or advanced search or whatever and it's like okay and you go back and you repeat that to the king and then the king is happy
0: the end it's a nice (coughs) adorable illustration well, there you go. If you'd like to supply stories for the main show or the roundup where you can submit them. Remember, questions and feedback over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. And we invite you to watch this show live over at jblive.tv, which is live at 1 p.m. Pacific, which works out to be.
1: Uh, twenty hundred UTC. How? Or 4 p.m. Eastern.
0: Nice. There you go. Over the JBLive.tvs. Or don't forget, if you don't have the bandwidth or you gotta keep it on the DL, jblive.fm is the audio stream for that shenanigans. And last but not least, if you're a patron at patreoncom today, you might just find a live version of this posted there. And if you're not watching live, turns out we have these brand new things that we just rolled out, scale engine exclusive called RSS feeds. And you can subscribe to this show and get it automatically every single week brand new we just did it for you guys we also created an entire ecosystem of podcast catchers and players and mobile phones for you to play it on just because we wanted you to get the show every single week at least that's that's what my notes here say i don't know how much of that is is actually accurate okay everybody thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of tech snap i will see you right back here next week